Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Kellen. And I'm Chris. We have a couple returning guests. Uh, listeners may remember Chris from our episode on Lord of the Rings and Kellen from our most uh, from one of our more recent episodes on Star Wars. Uh, and we have them back here again because we're all in a group chat and we started talking about space and space future. So that's what this episode will be about. Uh, but before we get into the space future and, you know, the marvelous things that we'll discover out there. Uh, you know, on on rocky planets, on uh, on on gas planets, on planets that are just you know cocktails of chemicals. Yeah. Uh, out in the cosmos, you may say. Yeah, yeah. Out in the cosmopolitan. Uh, what are people drinking right now, uh, Stephen? Uh, I am drinking some toxic acid, I suppose, otherwise known as cherry coke. Uh, I got a pizza the other day, and it came with a free two liter. And so, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to let it go to waste. But uh, yeah, I'm rotting my insides right now. Very nice. Haven't you seen what that does to an egg or what? Or uh, what's I the? Want, I don't want to think about it. What's the science experiment that people do with coke or like put Takes a bone in it, a car paint or something like that? Yeah, I think it does dissolve bones. I've seen that. Sounds about right. I don't want to think about it. I really don't. I don't want to think about the fact that like drivers who are or truckers who carry Pepsi products like don't they have to have like some sort of like toxic uh, or hazardous material certification in order to be able to safely transport it because only when they're going through california ah touche and that's because they're driving through a toxic wasteland Uh, yes there it is yes it's outside insulation uh chris what are you drinking i am drinking nature's bounty otherwise known as coconut and almond milk mixture um yeah you don't want to know why i I just have it in the fridge and it need to get needs to get drinking kind of like steven i guess uh, Chris, as I recall, I believe you said that uh, it didn't used to be as thick as it is now. Yeah, well, you know, it says on the package, drink within seven to ten days. I'm probably, I'm either at ten days or a little further past, and I've noticed a market change in how thick it's gotten. So I'm really just trying to drink it up before it goes bad. Buddy. Going where no man has gone before. Uh, Kellen, how about you? Well, unlike uh, my co-presenters here, I've put a little bit of effort into this. I actually have a multitude of space-themed cocktails I have created for this. First off, I have something called um, a Galaxy Magic Mule. I went and bought some, um, it's called, interestingly, it's called uh, Butterfly Pea Flower Tea. And it, when you put it in ice, it turns it blue. And when you put that in a cocktail, then with um, Moscow Mule, it kind of turns the whole thing to look like a galaxy. I, for a little later, I actually have an Elysian space dust ready to crack open, just a normal beer. And the more, the most interesting one I have in front of me is something I found called the Orbiter. And what that is, is it's a, uh, a cocktail based on Tang, which uh, has a surprising relationship with space, given that uh, the water they had for the original capsules, like John Glenn orbiting, um, the water tasted awful, so they actually had multiple water supplements uh, ready to put in, and Tang was one of them. So on the first, you know, manned spacecraft orbiting the Earth, uh, we had Tang. There's a rumor that NASA invented Tang. That's not quite true, but it is confirmed that Tang has been on many, many space missions, uh, which is a really interesting thing because you wouldn't think Tang would be involved with that. Um, and then because I'm an American, I replaced the gin with bourbon. That sounds fascinating. You'll have to give us a report if you can uh, by we get if you get to that uh, drink. Oh, there you go. There you go. Not bad. Not bad. It's like kind of orangey flavored bourbon. 
Kellen will be blasted off into space before the end of this uh, podcast episode. I got to make up for apparently no one else brought space-themed drinks. Yeah, I feel outclassed right now. I didn't bring a space-themed drink, but I did just make myself a pina colada just because it's sort of, you know, explorers, the Caribbean, rum, something, something. You know, that was the frontier then. Now we're talking about the other frontier. That was well shoehorned. The pina colada reminds you that Earth is actually a nice place and that uh, there's no reason to leave. Yeah, there's no reason to leave. And that's a pretty decent kickoff into our... So we have several articles that that, that we're talking about today from a variety of sources. Uh, We have one called The Elusive Peril of Space Junk from The New Yorker. Another one from The New Yorker called Have We Already Been Visited by Aliens? Uh, One from the London Review of Books, Where the Space Arcs, and then... Uh, from Scientific American, did Jesus come to save the Klingons or something like that? But we'll we'll structure it a little bit. But that's what we've all read to prepare for this. So so we're but we'll be pulling from these as we go uh, and structure our conversation here a bit. Uh, but the initiator of this whole conversation was a uh, screen cap of a tweet, as you know, all good conversations start with a screen cap of of a tweet these days. From Chris, who found uh, a little gem that I'll read from a guy uh, called Greg at How to Drink. I love Greg at How to Drink. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and he said, um, you may think propaganda is a thing that happens to and affects other people, but the full-throated defense of everything space, even billionaire God, King, Dick measuring contest is proof positive that you have never had a breath of fresh air away from brainwashing in your life. You, not all of you, but you know, are so captured by Cold War lies and Hollywood adventure films that you'll defend Bezos as a necessary step forward and what? An impossible fantasy cooked up to sell you on ICBMs and space lasers. So basically, going against this optimistic view of space exploration into the great unknown, the final frontier, the place where humanity's future lies, uh, you know, one day we'll all take space flights and things like Elon Musk and Virginia Galactic and Bezos, all of these are, are steps towards this great future. And and I think we all have sort of nuances towards that uncritical view, but just sort of to lay some groundwork, let's talk about space future and like what's maybe a, you know, decently um, intellectually honest or uh, charitable description of what a space futurist would look like, who's not, you know, like a fully automated space communism type. And there are like probably three points that I would throw here under space under space future as a positive thing to look forward to. The first is that it's an inherently optimistic point of view. It has decent values. Uh, it, it produces good things on Earth sort of as a byproduct, both intellectually and sort of, you know, spiritually as a, as a nation. We're aspiring towards great things. And it also, you know, makes good technology as a byproduct. The Velcro argument. Yeah, the Velcro argument. Exactly. Or, you know, the pen that can write underwater and upside down and then the Russians use a pencil. And then there's also the Russ Douthat argument that we talked about when we talked about decadence several episodes ago, you know, that space travel is aspirational. It breaks us out of our lethargy and decadence and all that. Or we could even go David Foster Wallace. It's something bigger. It's it's at least outside of ourselves. It's something for us to commit to and, and push forward to. I'm so happy. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. I, d- I did the reference for you. Point out that the uh, the the viral tweet or whatever it was about the pen and the Russians using a pencil, it is because if you break off a pencil in space and have a bunch of lead or graphite floating around, that causes a lot of problems for your very sensitive equipment. No, yeah, yeah, it's just the the, the graphite dust would mess up all of your electrical equipment. I, yeah, I would add technology not as a byproduct, but as a direct consequence. 
Um, so the pen being kind of a silly example or Velcro being uh, kind of another example, but also, I mean, satellites, cell phones, uh, GPS, like these are Velcro. We could have theoretically made it was just, it, it just, you know, because we wanted to, it was just kind of a byproduct of the inventive cycle of how to get people to space. But like GPS, we would not have that if it weren't for space exploration. And so like that, I, I think there's a bit of a nuance there. Fair. No, yeah, I, I would definitely amend that. Uh, second point for for positive space future is sort of what Stephen just said, that, there, that there's a positive for life bettering things and for solutions to various problems that we have. Uh GPS technology that directly affects Earth, mapping hurricanes, all that fun stuff, but also like stopping killer asteroids, which some people say we're overdue for. Or, you know, go mine the asteroid belt on basically unlimited resources if you can figure out how to get them that would, in theory, solve a lot of problems back Earth. And and, and all that tech, as Stephen noted, does come home. Um, and then my, my point or my, you know, best idea under here for solutions to world problems is that you know, we could finally stop all of these silly nationalistic war of, you know, Uzbekistan versus Tajikistan or whatever, and instead just do like an Earth versus Mars colony war like God always intended. And then the third reason that space exploration, that space future could be good is uh, aliens. We could find life out there, uh, the answer, the meaning, our place in the universe. We could find the aliens that created human life and originated us, and then we just have to find out who originated them, and then maybe we would find God, who knows. So that's optimistic space future that is sort of out there in the world, and then all the and then all of the articles that we read sort of cut cut against that in various ways. So let's start off on the more realistic side of things, uh, and that is with the two articles, uh, the elusive danger of space junk, and where are the space arcs? What do y'all think of these two contributions to the space future discussion uh the the space junk that one is uh a pretty fascinating issue uh so i, I was actually talking with my advisor and apparently and he was bringing up different uses for these uh these models that were were bringing up in the these different ways of modeling uh differential equations which the the problem of tracking uh space debris is is uh, inherently a differential equation and apparently they have they, they have these equations down so well that they're able or these approximations because you're never going to get exact that you they have to, I think they have to take a picture or like a kind of a quote unquote snapshot of uh, space each day. But they're able to kind of model how it works for the next day. They know roughly where that piece of debris is going to be. And then they're able to take another picture, estimate where it's going to be in a, in a future day and so on and so forth. So just not speaking directly on the article itself, but the, the math behind some of this stuff is actually pretty fascinating. Can you outline just in a couple sentences what this whole problem of space junk is? Oh, right. So in space, pretty much everything is at a free fall, uh, quote unquote free fall. It's, it's moving insanely fast because Earth's gravity is con kind of continually pulling it around, around, around itself. So even a very small piece of debris, I mean, you're talking the size of a cell phone or even smaller, will punch a hole right through your very, very expensive satellites or equipments or humans. And uh, this problem is getting worse and worse because the more stuff we send up there, the more things break off, the more, you know, whatever, whatever uh, accidents happen. Things do not fall out of space very, uh, very frequently, which to an extent, thank goodness. Um, and uh, so this problem is only getting worse and it can get to the point where if if it just got too bad, we wouldn't be able to leave Earth uh, because as of now, no no one has figured out how to clean space. Uh, we, we know how to get stuff up there. We don't know how to get stuff down. Yeah, and if I may, if I may chime in, um, I was 
particularly interested in uh, some of the articles referenced um, this New Yorker article and also the uh, London Review of Books article referenced uh, what they call the Kessler effect, named after the person who kind of pioneered the kind of movement around trying to clean up um, the Earth's orbit from all this debris. And basically what it posits is that there's at a, a kind of a no turning back point where there's enough debris in space and the likelihood of them colliding with each other is great enough that um, it becomes inevitable that um, one piece of debris will hit another piece of debris and it will spark a kind of um, chain reaction that we can't stop. And the ultimate end of this chain reaction is, a, you know, a big field of dust preventing us from leaving our atmosphere and also, you know, probably going to have various other cl climactic and, and other disastrous effects on, on the earth. Um, so that's sort of the, um, that's sort of the doomsday prediction. And, and he, he does plenty of modeling on this as well, Stephen, um, that I, I didn't have the chance to look into, but I think would probably be pretty fascinating and have a lot to do with these simulation type um, exercises that you're so good at. Um, one thing it reminded me of, though, is, is uh, in, in nuclear power, we have models for the basically the percentage of fission reactions that are going to spark additional fission reactions. Um, and I imagine that these uh, equations are probably really similar. I can jump here and uh, jump in here, too, and say that um, fascinating articles, really. And if we could even like put them in the description when this goes up, that'd be fantastic for people to read along. But I want to come at this from the perspective of necessity is the mother of invention. This has been a problem. It will continue to be a problem. Uh, Kessler was doing research on this in the 60s and 70s, and no one cared then because they didn't think it was going to be an issue. But then now they're like, oh, wait, actually, he was right all along. This could have very serious uh, cascading effects. But because everyone's aware of this now, and pretty much everyone now agrees that it is a problem, there are multiple um, governments, individual uh, private firms working on solutions on how to clean up space. Because as Brevin said, we don't have a really good way to clean it up now, but we're working on them. We're inventing ways. It was really interesting to see the little bit of video we have of like the, uh, the space cube launching a net that caught a piece of debris. Uh, that it, it launched itself, but it launched a piece of debris out and then shot a net out around it as just a proof of concept that there is the possibility that we can invent ways now that we know this is a problem to try and combat the issue, um, which is really fascinating. That's all very true, but I was struck, particularly in this article and in other ones too, by just how little control we have over space and things are moving at speeds that we physically can't comprehend and cannot plan for without the aid of computers and more or less by you know i suppose not the luck but the consistency that things that that as Stephen was saying that we can map them as they go around the earth we're lucky that they're so consistent but in a scenario where you have the kessler syndrome or the kessler effect activating you just have a deadly net of you know titanium fragments they don't even have to be titanium they can be paint flecks that would potentially trap us on Earth. And you're right that we have technology or that they're building technology to try and mitigate the problem. But it's not to get rid of things like that. It's to get rid of the biggest objects up there to try to avoid the problem. But when you have a scenario where what was the the stat from the article that that we have 10,000 satellites up in space and 2,700 of them still work and there's no slowing pace of satellites going up into orbit? You're right that the, that the technology might catch up, but there's no way to know if it'll be fast enough. Hmm. Yeah, I think what what struck me too, to your point, Brevin, um, is probably the cost associated with with trying to protect those precious assets up there. Like the the first article, the New Yorker article, 
really does a good job at kind of painting the problem in from the perspective of the International Space Station and how um, an object the size of a dinner plate came within, I think it was one and a half miles of the International Space Station, um, and they didn't have enough advance notice to move the space station kind of a safe probabilistic di uh, distance away from it. And um, the astronauts basically just hopped in their capsule and hoped and prayed that it wouldn't hit them. And there was a good, there was good odds that it wouldn't, but you know, I wouldn't take those odds. Um, and essentially the, you know, if it hit them, the dinner plate would have absolutely obliterated the entire space station. Um, just at the, the relative speed it was going with, with respect to the space station. And the astronauts were looking for it, but they knew they wouldn't be able to see it pass by because of how fast it was going with respect to them. Um, and just that, that does sort of paint a very scary picture of the actual, the kind of scale of things that we're dealing with here um, in the atmosphere. And, and, you know, the cost of having all this debris up there has to outweigh the, the cost of what it would take to kind of clean some of this up, I would imagine. And just for perspective, you said about a, it was about a mile and a half away from the um, the space station. Yeah, I think they. Um, Which I, I mean, when you oh yeah, if I'm not mistaken, the um, if something like that size is going to pass within a, uh, I think it was like a 50 mile buffer of the space station, um, then they try then they try to move the space station just to just to lower the probability that it'll hit. Um, this one they due to some various cosmic forces, they weren't given enough advance notice to move the space station, um, which has happened, I think they said only a handful of times in the past where they just kind of had to hope that something, that it wouldn't hit. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yes, I think the ultimate distance from the space station was a mile and a half, which on uh, kind of cosmic scales is rather small. So it was it was quite close. Right, that, that, that was what I wanted to bring up was that when we're talking about space, I mean, a mile and a half, that is, uh, that, that is such a, a small amount of distance when you consider the vastness of space that, yeah, it's actually completely understandable that they were so panicked. Um, also, with the inherent inaccuracy that a lot of these uh, these modeling uh, equations come with, yeah, no, like that that would have been absolutely terrifying. And it was very much on the table that they would just have gotten obliterated. And at the speeds, at the speeds it was traveling, a mile and a half would be covered in a blink. They wouldn't. They wouldn't like be able to watch it like we mentioned they wouldn't be able to watch it coming and be prepared for it they just kind of had to wait and see if it passed by and they could track it on the other side because it could have covered that mile and a half if it was a little bit different within like the blink of an eye they would have had no time to do anything yeah. well if i may um you know maybe cap this off with an article or a um a nugget of hope the most of the debris that is most concerning up there is rather large. Um, I think some there was a kind of eight ton satellite that is that the European Space Agency lost uh, lost recently. That's kind of a particular interest. And, and there's also um, something like a uh, ammonium tank that's like 30,000 gallons or something like that. That seems particularly dangerous to have just floating up in space. Um, but these are kind of they're almost softballs in a sense because they're easy to track. They're easy to get to, um, and if we can recover them, that's that's a whole lot of material that we can kind of remove from this calculation and the Kessler effect. Um, because what's really concerning, yeah, there's tons of small debris, which is which is ultimately is still a problem. But what's really concerning is the is the odds of one of these large pieces of debris being hit and totally obliterated. Um, it just has the potential to um, really accelerate this Kessler effect. So, but those are pretty easy comparatively to to collect and round up and there's only you know i think the european space agency has come up with a list of 10 that they that they really like to get rid of 
um, in the near future. And, and there's smart people working on this topic. So it's going to happen. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure the article also goes into, yes, we're not slowing down um, the amount of new satellites going up, but because this is a problem people are aware of now, there actually are building in more ways to bring them back down once their mission is complete. Because in the past, you just kind of launched them up there and didn't think about it anymore. Like, oh, look, we you know we used it for two years. It's out of commission now and we can forget about it. But because people are aware of the problem, they're actually having to build in ways to decommission when they're decommissioned to like bounce them off the atmosphere and incinerate them or something like that. Yeah. And God King Musk is uh, bringing, bringing all of his rockets back to Earth and landing them safely. So we have him to thank. Thanks Noble to are his ways. Indeed. I, so I think, uh, Stephen, do you have something here? No, go for it. I was just going to comment on astronaut, astronaut urine. Okay. Um, I think we've covered pretty well the objects that are not supposed to be in space. But what about the objects that are supposed to be in space? In other words... We're asking the question of where are the space arcs, our next article, which goes into, you know, the question like, why don't we have our giant space hotels? Where's our, our, our colony ships? Why have we stagnated with, you know, geo satellites and the U.S. military's, you know, vast in the in the writer of the pieces, uh, the books that he's reviewing, you know, the war for the weaponization of space. Why are we settling for that when we could have, you know, space arc utopia? Um, yeah. Why? dangerous for the people up there um i one of my takeaways from that article is uh well things on the earth aren't as settled as they could be uh there's not a lot of peace on in our time uh you might say you can look at uh very current news for can learn all about that but uh the idea is like if if there are people in space more than like the iss if there's a space hotel if there's a space arc and it would be such an easy target for an enemy to bring down uh, just it, there's multiple multiple nations that have worked on ground to space technology to bring to bring down um, material that's up there, and it's really easy to do. Much easier than actually putting things into space is to launch things into space just to hit something else in space. So that is a real concern for having civilians and um, you know non-affiliated people just around up there. Though I am a little surprised at that particular attitude in that like it's just an easy target so let's say we have a space hotel i mean like yes you are making an easy target but only for forces that would or doesn't strike me as an easy target for forces that would want such a target so taliban for example like sure they would love to bring down a an american space hotel but like they don't have the technology for that we'd be more concerned with uh, china north korea et cetera, et cetera, who wouldn't dare do something like that because first of all, it's petty and gains them nothing. And then second of all, we would just retaliate back because we can. Um, so I am a little surprised that the article went there uh, in that it's pretty much saying we're making a bunch of vulnerabilities. Those would only be vulnerabilities at the point of all out war. And even then that would be just attacking civilians. Well, I think the point of the article was was more about the military of space and, and almost a reiteration of the point that the original tweet was making in that there really isn't actually that much interest or money in, you know, trying to do peaceful missions in space. It's, it's much more about controlling what's on the ground underneath it. And that's created this uh, and that's the technology that the U.S. military in particular uh, has pursued and then interesting arguments about how that's affected the shape of our military, which we're seeing play out sort of firsthand in Afghanistan right now, where just you have a highly technology dependent military that then gives people who don't depend on that an asymmetric advantage in any situation where that factor can be removed by any way. Um, but then also just things how space affects the, the geopolitics of Earth, where 
you have uh, the whole argument about ideology catching up with technology. That if from drones from space, all you can determine is military age males and you can now target them from space from your drones, then I guess it's the military age males that are the targets or weddings. Like either, you know, a glorious space future was stolen from us or this was always the goal. Well, if I may chime in, I think a lot of the current space fever centers around these two or three um, kind of big public space entities. You know, we've got SpaceX and Blue Origin, and then there's the, um, was it like the Virgin Airlines guy? Virgin Galactic. So um, I think those would kind of fly in the face of that theory, right? Like this space theory currently doesn't appear to me anyways to be driven um, in any sort of way by militarization, uh, other than the fact that, you know, SpaceX gets a lot of its funding or a lot of its contracts from governments around the world. Um, for this for these purposes but um you know the very exercise of launching a tesla roadster into space is very you know it kind of flies in the face of that and i and i think a lot of the public at least the public perception and fever with with space is um much more in in the vein of kind of scientific discovery and and the prospects of of landing colonies on mars than it than it has anything to do with you know projection of power in a military sense uh, i was gonna i was gonna ask and you kind of wrapped it up at the end but do you do you think that that Musk and Bezos and anyone else who does it who has the personal funding to do this as kind of honestly a publicity stunt because space is cool people will tune in and watch it do you think that there that, that there's the possibility of that turning into benefits for the common man like the the people like launching a Tesla Roadster into space it's cool uh, it's great they did that. Great publicity, but what what benefit does it do to anyone? It doesn't benefit the military or the civilians. Well, I would say that act in particular uh, benefits no one. But kind of similar to the we got Velcro out of space exploration. I mean, the amount of technology, the amount of research uh, that needed to be done to be able to launch the Tesla Roadster into space. I think that would be that would be the argument I would make, and I think somewhat sincerely uh, to. Um, to kind of back that like sure it's it's a bunch of conceited billionaires showing off but there are legitimate goods that can come from that um and I, I i think i would say perhaps the reason that we've seen so much militarization in space is because of the entities that have been doing space exploration so far so governments and governments typically have one main interest is to secure their own assets and to protect themselves and protect their citizens slash perhaps gain more land, gain more control, gain more territory, or, or what have you. Um, I miss whereas, the simple days when everyone just said their goal was world domination, and I now know, we right? just have to pretend like it's human rights, but like, come on. It's unfortunate, I know. What with modern civilization and peace and prosperity, it sucks. Just move to China, um, Brennan. <laughs> exactly. Or China will move to you. <laughs> um, now, I, I, I do think, though, that corporations, for all the uh, negative... Uh, cynical side to them, they are bringing a more, let's just call it consumer-friendly version of this. They're no, it, the entities moving into space aren't, aren't necessarily the entities that are interested in making war. They're interested in making profits. And what will make profits? Bringing people to space, space tourism, maybe even colonization, what have you. I mean, look, the East India Trading Company did wonders for uh, colonization and uh, exploration and human rights violations. Um, but that's besides the point. There are no humans to uh, to have their rights violated in Mars, so we're, we're fine. So I think the um, 
space colonization is a good that is much more distant than several other goods that could come out of um, private space exploration. I, I think the most immediate goods are going to be things like asteroid mining, I think is a very real prospect uh, to you know bring rare earth metals back to earth from asteroids. Um, that has very real like near-term benefits. I don't think that in many lifetimes we'll be in need of another planet personally. And so I don't know that colonization is really like an immediate good. So, I mean, England didn't need another colony, but it didn't stop them. It didn't really work out in their favor, though. Yeah, touche. It, it did for a long time, let's be real. England yeah, so was kind of, on it. you know, really big and really successful for a long time with all the colonization. Um, an interesting one of the things you brought up, uh, we've talked about is like the point of a government is to look inward, secure their own assets rather than expanding outward. And I wanted, I wanted to bring up the, the space race in the Cold War and how that was sort of turned that whole idea on its head because, you know, being the first to the moon doesn't secure anyone's own assets, but it, because they were these two global superpowers kind of racing for it, uh, proving, proving who's best, a uh, measuring contest, if you will. That was an interesting thing that we kind of lost with the collapse of the Soviet Union to where there's only was one space power for such a long time now that has been able to look inward and create GPS and satellite drone strikes and whatever else you have you that affects the Earth or the good things like climate tracking, as opposed to having someone to compete with to push the boundary further. Yes. Okay. So what I'm hearing is that either space capitalism will save us or space war for capturing everything out there will save us. One of the two. The Catholic Church involved and we could do a holy war with an indulgence sub theme. Oh, that would have been great. Like, that's a great transition to aliens, but we're not just like we need a second more before we get there. So that that to say, that is one thing that people talk about very approvingly of the space race is the unifying effect that it is sort of an inherently hopeful aspirational project that a nation can embark upon because it does require that kind of resource or at least in the past it required that kind of resources but i think the easy return to that is yes we were going to the moon but it was also to make sure that in case there was anything really really good on the moon that the soviets didn't get to it first and the fact that it coincided very nicely with ICBM research and perfecting that technology is not just a random coincidence either. But, you know, speaking of like going to other places, you, you were talking about establishing colonies. There is always the possibility that when we go out, we might find someone else has been there first. And that's the third aspect of space future, positive space future, is aliens life out there and the various hopes and dreams that humans have projected onto aliens to make their sad little lives mean something. Um, I'm thinking of anyone who has ever been on ancient aliens uh, in particular here. Uh, like you could just be a historian, but then you had to be a fake historian instead. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's quite the career choice. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but a rich fake historian as opposed to a poor actual historian. So I can only fault them so much. Touche. So there's a lot that we can talk about aliens, but first I'm going to cede the floor very, very briefly to Stephen to talk just a little bit, he's going to keep it brief, a little bit about math and in particular why some people are very, very convinced that there is a high likelihood that there are aliens out there and whether or not based on the math that he has been sending us screenshots with incessantly over the past week, whether or not that is a true assumption or not or what he makes of the whole thing so steven to you okay i would just like to go on record saying that you and sam go on your political rants all the time and i never cut you off but the moment i want to talk about math 
Um, I'm sorry. I missed all of the comments clamoring for a dialogue on differential equations. Touche. Okay. Um, I also missed all the comments. We don't get comments. Yeah, that's also true. You know, like, comment, and subscribe and all that. Okay. So I will try to keep things very brief. I'm going to start with just a few definitions. First, the Drake equation. The Drake equation was an equation developed by Frank Drake to estimate the number of civilizations in our galaxy that are able to communicate with us. Um, it has a bunch of parameters uh, that can be switched over to probabilities, and, and the, the authors of the paper I, uh, that, that was sent out uh, used a very similar equa uh, equation. Um, so these authors used nine parameters and said that each one pretty much has a window between 0 and 0 0.2. So probability, a probability of 0 0.2 is 20%, 0 is 0, is 0 etc. Okay, so that's the equation we're working with. Uh, the reason people are so confident that aliens exist is given these nine parameters, let's just average their value of 0.1. So zero between 0 and 0.2, average is 0.1. Let's just say each parameter is 0.1. Uh, so at first pass, that's 0.1 to the ninth, which so the odds of life developing on a uh, on a planet is 0.1 to the ninth, which is really, really, really small. However, there are hundred there are at least a hundred billion stars in our galaxy. And so for no life to have developed on any planet other than ours, uh, if you run through the math, it's roughly 3.7 times 10 to the negative 44th. For perspective, your odds of getting struck by lightning in an average lifespan of 80 years is 1 in 15,000. So if you got struck by lightning every single second of your life, you'd still only be struck 2.5 times 10 to the negative ninth, meaning that you've only even begun shipping away at this massively small number uh, of 3.7 times 10 to the negative 44th. And just to be clear, the, the probability of life in the Fermi equation, that, or the Drake equation, is specifically for intelligent communicating life. Yes. Yes, okay. exactly. So not not uh, you know a protein forming or not a single cell organism or even something like an ape where it's some form of intelligent life but still has no chance of communicating. Uh, technically, you could also include like Stone Age civilizations that you know they have no way of sending it out any sort of frequency um, uh, outside into uh, or to us. So that and I'm glad you mentioned Fermi. So Fermi is it, there's this thing called the Fermi paradox, which which is okay. So if this Drake equation is implying that the odds of there being no civilization that ha that is able to communicate with us exists, that wh why haven't we heard from them? Why aren't they sending us, us to anything? And so this paper that was sent out to the group was saying, okay, well, wait, hang on. There have been a few assumptions that have been made that we shouldn't have made, and starting with that average value of 0.1. Um, and so they did what was called a Monte Carlo simulation. Uh, pretty much we simulate a universe's parameters by randomly choosing between 0 and 0.2, and we do this over and over and over again enough to get an average. And if you do this, you actually find that, yeah, life develops or communicable life develops a fair amount of times, but not as often as you'd think, actually. Um, I forget what the what the numbers I sent you guys uh, were. Just a sec, let me, let me pull those bad boys up. I think, what, roughly only a, a little under 80% of the time uh, life forms, which certainly means that, yeah, we should expect life, but 20% of the time it doesn't. Um, and so we, we really shouldn't be all that surprised at all. Uh, and this is my own hot take. It seems that because we're dealing with probabilities between 0 and 0.2, it, all it takes is one parameter to be chosen to be really, really low to pretty much make the whole thing 0. And I think I'm guessing that's what happens a lot of times. It's just all it takes is one, one, hostile, one hostile parameter, and the whole thing kind of falls apart. So... If anyone ever talks, if any of you or dear listeners has somebody talking about the Fermi paradox, uh, you can just simply say, well, 
that's why they need to run Monte Carlo simulations and not use point, uh, point averaging. Does it oh. get into at all the concept that we could be the first? I mean, in every sci-fi thing we come across, Star Trek, Mass Effect, anything like this, humans go out and discover already existing advanced civilizations. But someone had to be first, right? Someone had to be the first one out there to have everyone else run into them. So does, do any of these cover that concept that maybe the humans are just the first and there are developing societies out there that we can so, then run into? I think if you look at the original Drake equation, um, you have N equals and then a bunch of parameters and N is the number of civilizations capable of communicating. And so I think, I think this may be me misinterpreting this, but if N equals one, then it should just us and only us. And if N is more than one, there are other people out there. Um, and the odds should be that, or an N should be massive. And given that one of the base premises is civilizations able to communicate with us, then if N is greater than one, we should have some, we should have had some sort of, sort of communication. I think another way of resolving the paradox has been something to the effect of uh, they're able to, well, they're able to communicate. It's just their methods of communication are so massively more advanced than us that we're just simply not able to understand them. Uh, well, that's almost the Lovecraftian, like the gods are so is so enormously great that they wouldn't even notice if we if they squashed us. Well, that's not even like the or or just just to say that when people have encountered the pe Fermi's paradox and take it seriously without thinking very hard. They come up with all sorts of, you know, head twisty ways to try to get around decent probability, judging by the numbers that you've presented, that we are alone, which is that, you know, maybe there's a, another parameter that you need to add where uh, the more advanced a civilization is, the more capable and likely it is to wipe itself out. And so that's why we haven't heard anything is because, yes, they exist, but they all kill themselves just like we're we're going to. And I think the um, the kind of the, the timeline of these stars are so enormous that the likelihood of that happening, I feel like, is pretty high. Um, you know, the time a civilization could feasibly exist in, in a star's lifetime is immense. And you could have many, many times, and, and comparatively, our civilization has lasted a very, very short amount of time in, in a star's lifetime. Um, and who knows how long we, we will ultimately last. Um, and so I think all of those factors kind of compound to make, in my opinion, the probability of, of our various timelines cross you know intersecting pretty pretty low likelihood because we've only had 50 years maybe maybe 100 years of the technology to even interpret interstellar uh communication or maybe all of the alien oh sorry kellen did you some oh i just think or maybe every fifty thousand years a race of hyper intelligent machines come back from out of the galaxy and wipe out all intelligent life down to pre-stone age levels i mean the probability for that is not zero uh and and neither is the probability for uh earth to be the the, the planet in the universe where original sin was was created so there's an embargo on our planet by all the other godly celestial alien species who who know not to come to the earth uh unless oh, yes. they're explicitly evil which is actually the plot of a christian sci-fi series called the videla chronicles that i read some of back when i was in high school or something did any of you guys run into to this series? I don't think so, no. I have not. It's actually like kind of very smart, uh, aside from the fact that the aliens look like seagulls or doves, um, which is Little just so, so it's it's a Christian sci fi series, but but basically, uh, like you know, Christianity is expressly true, the entire galaxy is divided into like the people who follow God and then the aliens who explicitly do not, um, but Earth is a no go zone 
and they just like heard like the theological ramifications of Jesus's actions, but not the specifics. So he, so the main character who's a human who ends up going into space with the aliens is like bringing them the message of what happened on, on, on earth and the gospel that they've been sort of like sub- subconsciously following. It's, it's a fascinating story in part because and, it, pretty good. And, and this is a transition to, uh, to, to our article that Kellen provided us. Uh, did Jesus save the Klingons? The, like it struck me and, and it's still like probably informs how I would think about aliens. Jesus didn't die for humans. He, he died for sentient species and like the word for, whatever is sentient species. And that's how you get around it. He died once for all, you know, beings with consciousness. And that's, that is one category of being, which effectively solves all of, or at least one of the stupid objections that this uh, ethicist has in this Klingon article. Kellen, do you want to lead that? Uh, I, I, I was going to point out that I found this article and honestly, none of us uh, particularly agree with his interpretations of any of the major faiths and how they would interact with it, but that's beside the point. My act, what I was actually going to say, um, is one of the common, one of the real problems that we that that Christian scientists with relation to alien life have had is imago dei made in the image of God. But I feel like the easiest explanation around that, and anyone else can comment on this as well, is that the image of God is to be rational, to be a higher thinking species, as opposed to like animals to ha- basically we can hold other conversation, but to have a soul and there's no reason that God has to look like a human. It could just be rationality and higher intelligence. That is the image of God that was breathed into, into humanity. I'd only caveat that by saying that I think at least a vaguely, I think it's Catholic Christian anthropology would just be not ration, not purely rationality per se, or r- rationality isn't the only factor for Imago Dei, but rather personhood, which is something more like unique instance of. But yes, basically agree. Yeah, I mean, if so, there would also be something to the effect of if God is infinite, then his image is also infinite and can take infinite form. And so not just human. I, I think the only the only objection I would have to that would not necessarily even be a la Imago Dei. It would be uh, incarnation. So Christ became human. He did not become an alien uh, of any kind. He he became human. And so there is something inherently uh, divine within humanity and then vice versa. Or So there's something divine in humanity as uh, via Imago Dei, but there's actually something human in the divine, a la the incarnation. Christ is human, and therefore God is human, uh, if you were to take the, uh, the hypostatic union seriously. So I'm not Catholic, but I'm going to try to do uh some jesuit theology some justice here and and brevin can correct me if i get any of this wrong my understanding of of what maybe some of the more radical jesuits believe is that jesus is in in a sense kind of a concept that you can wrestle with um you know pure love and you can wrestle with him in abstract um and perhaps not have to wrestle with him in you know in a physical sense um kind of like we humans are able to and so that would open up doors for as brevin said kind of Christians who don't realize they're Christians in space um, and taking the form of aliens, uh, perhaps being Christian and the whole Christian worldview maintaining intact despite aliens. Did I get that right, Brevin? That's yeah, it's it's close enough. I I, I thought you were going to go like actual radical Jesuit Gual, like Richard Rohr, Cosmic Christ on me, but you refrain. So you you don't actually know how bad it can get. Uh, but all I would say simply is that uh, Stephen, you could say that 
God became human, which is accurate, but something, something language contingent on time and place. If we knew they were aliens, maybe we would use a different term or we would have a different term to describe the categorical term for, you know, beings with for insult beings, whatever that is. Uh, or another way of, of saying it is just, you know, the word became human, but or you could say the word became flesh and the condition of fleshness would could hypothetically be endemic to all aliens or to all uh, beings with souls everywhere, sin uh, and potential for godliness alike. One of the interesting notes, I, oh, I didn't mean to interrupt there, but um, the same sort of discussions actually happened around the discovery of the new world. Whether whether Jesus' sacrifice was for the Native Americans because they had no concept that we were all descended from the same place from the same um, they 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 kind of considered them to be aliens because they had no concept of how people could have been over there from before they didn't understand like the land bridge from Alaska to Russia and all that so it would it would be a quite an interesting concept to have the same sort of thing going on with space actually I've heard random theories never from like real official sources that technology pre the flood was actually far more advanced than we give credit for. Um, and what if there's the possibility that there actually was space travel before the flood, we lost it. And then we go out in space and discover other people. We have no concept of how they got there, but they actually are descended from the same place. And then of course, then you have Jesus sacrifice covering them already. I blame all those ecumenical councils for translating the Bible to say all the nations instead of all of the planets. That would have solved the whole problem. Guys, the Tower of Babel was a spaceport. We all know this. The Nephilim are the super uh, space ambassadors from the Galactic Senate. We expelled them after they, you know, got frisky with some human women. Like, really, it was just this whole thing. It's it's old politics. We don't need to talk about it on this podcast. Had Canada accepted. I, it is interesting. So I... I guess to somewhat start talking about the article itself, uh, how the article like starts out by saying like it, it almost pretends that like no Christian theologian has ever thought about this possibility before. It's like oh my gosh, it'd be such a theological nightmare. Which, to be fair, there would be a lot of theolo- theologizing that would need to happen. Um, I I think I had a, uh, a professor who said that that w- that would be the one thing that like guaranteed an atheistic council for the Orthodox would be the discovery of life on other planets. Um, so so yes, uh, sorry, just I'm, yeah, I'm yeah gonna... go for it. I'm going to let you finish, uh, but just two quick things. The first being that uh, we should say that the writer of, of this article or the writer of these books sort of v- takes the Fermi paradox uncritically of like, oh, yeah, like it's inevitable very soon that we'll have definitive proof of aliens. So it's it's an imminent problem. The, the second thing that I would say uh, just and then uh, is is that he's like, yes, this will wreak havoc on religion. Yes, I think you're right. It's also going to wreak havoc on geopolitics. Like, let's not pretend that advanced alien species would not upend all of earth politics as we know it that's just a flight of secular you know slapping yourself on the back that to think that the u.s china and the u.n would normally take aliens popping up on our front door yep we just shrug and it's just like oh that's weird okay well there's uh, there's aliens that's fine yeah the do you think they'd be nato or u.n the aliens well, aliens have been a part of NATO since the 70s, but... See, I, I'm actually just somewhat convinced they would just wipe us all out. Like, no, like, we'd be we bugs to them. Like, they, they would just come, lay waste, either that or just avoid us. Like, what... If they are capable of interstellar uh, communication, or not not communication, let's just say travel. Uh, let's say, say travel because, you know, they're able to get here. If they're capable of that, we have literally nothing to offer them. They already have all the material they could ever want. They already have all the land they could ever want. They do not need Earth. 
It's actually a concept um, in Star Trek, of course, the prime directive the Federation has. And to, to try to say that that's only a humanity thing would be silly. Like, uh, if there are highly advanced civilizations out there and they... They would obviously watch Star Trek, too. Yeah. Yes. Oh. Of course. We actually did beam Star Trek into space. I want to point that out. There are Star Trek uh, discs or VHSs, I forget, out launched into space. That happens. Um, it's the concept of a Star Trek... VHS out there like that was the height of our technology some aliens gonna find that be like y'all are idiots but it's not just Star Trek I mean that happens um in Doctor Who even the aliens are aware of Earth and they think oh we can't interfere with them because one we don't care to they don't have anything to offer us but two we don't the nicer ones like we don't want to interfere with their development and kind of ruin their whole geopolitics I believe it's been too long since I've read it but I believe it comes up in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as well that some aliens going to come along and just blow up Earth because they don't care about it. It's such a minimal thing for them, mm -hmm. and they have to stop that because it's Earth and we're it, Earth-based. It's to make uh, make way for a uh, space highway, I think, and it's just it's just inconvenience in the way, and so they get rid of it. Yeah, Walker Percy in uh, Lost in the Cosmos has uh, a great uh, space odyssey tale on um, the. He has two scenarios. First, there is no uh, there is no life on another planet, and then there is, and the one in which there is. Uh, this is at the height of the Cold War. Space or astronauts are sent out. They finally get to this planet where they thought there was life, and indeed there is life. Uh, they have no idea if life back on Earth has uh, it has lasted or not. If they've wiped themselves out, and they pretty much beg for a place to land. And the aliens are they kind of look at look at the humans, look at their situation, look at just kind of their mode of being, and say we do not like we want no part. We, we don't want to deal with you. There's a civilization over there that's as murderous and insane as you guys are. Go go be with them. Leave us alone, please. It's uh, it, it's quite, uh, I think the, the term you would use is uh, haunting, right, Brevin? So if I can bring it back to the article, I think um, there was two particularly comical hot takes, I think, from the, um, the author's perspective. One of them was that uh, Eastern Orthodoxy is a sect or is a... Uh, subsect of catholicism i thought that branch was it's a branch, a branch. Of that's right that is yeah it's just you know it's it's a local franchise the orthodox church don't know if you visited the the orthodox branch and then the other hot take um was that oh oh christianity would have a really hard time wrestling with um with extraterrestrial life but judaism and, and their historical text it says nothing about extraterrestrial uh life so they wouldn't really be bothered at all that's the hot take there it, well and in in particular they said one of the biggest issues with christianity is the doctrine of original original sin actually weirdly enough it's like catholicism in particular is the doctrine right. of original sin like it's where we get our catholic guilt well i'm touche you do have that in spades um but, but like pretending that the other branches of christianity have no concept of original sin but that's besides the point like we get the concept of original sin from Judaism. You, like, did you, did the author do any research on this? Like, it, ostensibly he's talked with a theologian or two, but it doesn't really seem that she, she, I think. Oh, she. Oh man, please don't cancel me. The guy wrote a whole book. I think I actually think it's a guy she that wrote the, a author whole book. The, the author of the article was a she. She was discussing with the author of a book who who wrote about extraterrestrial life and religions wrestling with it um to clear that up i think the i think he was a man i could be wrong but i really um, appreciate you saying oh you, yeah you might be right the author of the article is yes. um well doesn't in any have, case doesn't, doesn't I, have I pronouns but seems female i'm a little ashamed to share my um my gender expression with this man just given his his um 
poorly researched book that I'll never purchase, and I and I don't wish it upon my worst enemy. I think my absolute... so now I feel compulsed to go buy the book and read it. Apparently, by your guys's twisted logic, that is how that works. No, I think my absolute favorite part of the interview was when he's like, "Yeah, I mean, Christians just have." this like crazy idea that like we're God's favorite children. And it's like, okay, but like relative to like animals and rocks, that's like super reasonable. And to say anything else is like just absolutely insane. And when I hear things like that, like I just, I get hopping mad. And when I'm hopping mad, I rant. So why don't we start off with Chris? Why don't you give your rant a whirl? Okay. So I think we've established thus far that space is it's pretty cool right now, you know? It's kind of in vogue, you may say. Um, I'd, I'd kind of think it all kind of happened, it all kind of started when Shania Twain released the song That Don't Impress Me Much back in 1998. Um, I don't know if y'all are familiar, but... Not at all, but it's it, it's going to appear somewhere in the podcast now. Okay, so you're a rocket scientist. That don't impress me much. Amazing. Um, so listen to the whole thing and you'll know the line that I'm referring to. Um, well, in the engineering field, this obsession is taken to a whole other level. And, and I'm an engineer. And um, when I was in college, all of my classmates were um, quite obsessed with space and, and wanted to go work for aerospace companies. And NASA and SpaceX was just sort of coming off the ground. And um, it was all fine and good. But lately, man, it's just been insane. Um, What's what's really the worst manifestation of it, I think, is is being on LinkedIn and seeing when when um, you know old classmates get job offers for places like NASA or SpaceX, they just post these like just slimy uh, up job updates, just steeped in elitism and self righteousness. It's like it makes me so angry, and it just it really just pushes me out of any interest in space. And a part of that too is like I have a tendency towards hipsterism or or kind of contrarianism but still i just it's just so bad um and then kind of part two of my rant is like how come space force hasn't gotten any of this like cool credibility um it doesn't seem to be like it doesn't have the same seat at the popular kids table that that uh, spacex seems to get and i think that's kind of unfounded and you know i think it might have something to do with the like you know the fact that trump started it and that's just quite a shame because um it's a pretty cool thing and they're gonna do some good stuff and um i guess you know, projection of power and global surveillance and, and weapons of mass destruction just aren't as appealing anymore. Dude, I am right with you. Semper Supra. Listen, if Space Semper Force Supra. if if Space Force can get me like a full rods from God weapon like a G.I. Joe retaliation, I will be so goddamn happy. But Kellen, I'm sure did, you're not happy. Did anyone watch the uh the Steve Corral show? Because I did not about Space Force. I have, it's amazing. Please watch. Okay. I've, I've heard good things. Well, anyway, um, my rant, I'll keep it short and sweet. And uh, we actually covered a bit of what it's about earlier, just slightly. But I want to talk about The Expanse TV show. Unfortunately, I haven't read the books, but I've heard they were good. My dad has read them and recommends them highly. He's the one who got me into the show as well. But it's a really, really good sci-fi show. They take the science seriously. They deal with G-forces, even in space, which is something that only vaguely gets mentioned in stuff like Star Trek with inertial dampeners. Um, you assume that's what they're for, is to counteract G-forces. But uh, it's really, really well done. They deal with all kinds of very, very scientific problems that actually occur with space travel. One of my favorites is that 
in the Expanse's future, we have settled on Mars humans and in the asteroid belt. And people who were born and raised in those different environments have wholly different, like, respiratory, immune systems, everything. They have different, like, skeletal structures because of different levels of gravity while they're growing up. And it's really interesting when, like, the, there's, a, there's a plot of a Martian going to Earth that she has to take actual medication to be able to survive on Earth because of the differences there. Um, and what we mentioned earlier is there is a whole geopolitical conflict between Belters and the Martians and Earth. And there's almost, uh, no spoilers, but about th th there's almost some acts of war going on that cause whole problems. But the geopolitics are really interesting and they're very realistic and how those would work in going forward for uh, the, the three different kind of sects of humanity. But it's a really good show and one of my favorite hard science sci-fi shows out there. So I highly recommend people watch it. All right. Uh, for my rant. So as vaguely foreshadowed, I think, in the last episode, uh, despite Steven's pleas to not give The Green Knight, the movie that just came out, a red cent, I, along with my wife and two friends, went to see the movie Sunday evening. Uh, to prepare, I read the entirety of the poem, uh, Gawain and, and the Green Knight, updated to the modern English by none other than Tolkien himself. Uh, it's a tale, if you didn't know, of you know chivalry, quests, honor, competing duties and obligations, virtue and temptation. But of course, we live in you know a modern in a world with modern English departments, so there's all manners of interpretations from reasonable to unreasonable. And this movie outdoes all of them. So I have to differ from Stephen's analysis that the movie is just like a vapid, confusing, boring mess. Stephen's critique is something like that the movie gets over its skis trying to shoehorn in imagery that's empty. That, you know, that there's just not really anything to note. But that's exactly incorrect. The movie knows exactly what it's doing. If you actually look at the text that it's interpreting, you can see what it chooses to affirm and what it's warping. And it is a dark, dark vision of the world. And though I will leave my full exegesis to like a future episode, we're probably going to make this a full thing if we can get Sam to watch it. Uh, I will summarize my position on, on this film. Uh, we should not cast aside the Green Knight as empty drivel. Rather, we should take it for what it is, a demonic playbook, and take notes for our counterattack. Steven, you're in. Well, first, I just, I just want you to know that I actually, like, I don't take offense to you disagreeing with me or anything. In fact, I find it inspiring how charitable you are towards this individual and saying that he's not, or towards the individual who directed it and saying that he's not an idiot, but is rather demonic. I think that's very, it's very noble. Well, at least one of us is being noble. I'm not sure which is more noble to call someone an idiot or demonic, but um, you know, yeah, actually, I, I'm well, not. see, I'm giving him agency. Ah, uh, that's true. And I'm just saying he's a moron. Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll have to, we'll have to talk about that. And uh, I still stand by no one should ever watch that horrible triple. But in any case, We've all done, or I guess Kellen and Chris both did vaguely space-related uh, rants, so I'll, I'll do one. Uh, so every so often, I probably once every three or four months, I'll get into a weird funk, and I'll look up uh, the odds of an asteroid hitting us. And it, it was brought up a couple times, but we never really got into it. And it is honestly fascinating. So first, we have to consider the vastness of space, um, like just how big it is. And so... There's there's space debris everywhere, um, it, and indeed there there's concentrated space debris around Earth, and, and really any any gravitational center there's going to be a fair amount of you know there's going to be more space debris than in 
no place. But like space itself is filled with absolutely hostile objects that if they so much as touched Earth, they would just annihilate it. Uh, I, I think it's 10 kilometers wide is all that's needed to in, annihilate all Earth, all life on Earth. Um, just absolutely everything. One kilometer, I think, would wipe out a continent or something like like a, a sizable part of the uh, of a continent. Even like a football field or two, if it if it was a football field, by the time it made it through Earth's atmosphere, it'd wipe out a city. Uh, like it is, it is absolutely extraordinary how dangerous uh, these uh, these objects these objects are. Um, and what's What's also extraordinary is how often they actually do hit us. Not not the big ones, but the small ones. Um, like there are there are airbursts that happen all the time, apparently in in Earth. Um, these are rather small ones, but by small I mean like the bomb that went off over Hiroshima. Uh, that happens apparently a decent amount of time. The thing is, a large portion of the Earth is uninhabited, and it happens up or fairly high up in the atmosphere. And so there are like atom bombs going off. In our atmosphere, we just don't know about them until kind of after the fa uh, the fact. So, if ever you have like an hour to kill, go down a Wikipedia rabbit hole of uh, asteroids and then also asteroid prevention and a lot of the difficulties therein. Uh, one of the the moral dilemmas uh, with asteroid prevention is once you kind of figure out how to uh, direct an asteroid, then it becomes a weapon. And so, can you redirect it to hit, say, China or North Korea, and they might want to do the same with us? So. It's honestly, the, the whole thing is a fascinating field, and I would recommend looking into it. Rest in peace to the dinosaurs. For real, though. <laughs> All right. Well, then, on that happy note, we will conclude our discussion of space future, space force alike, and head out. Uh, so for everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm, I'm Kellen. And I'm Chris. And uh, we'll see you next time, Baby Cowboy. No, seriously, for the love of God, don't watch The Green Knight. Like, The Green Knight was trying. It was trying really, really hard. Steven, it, the more you it, talk, the more I want to see it. I know, right? I, That's exactly what happened with me. Call <laughs> it <laughs> Steven Paradox. <laughs> yes. The more he tries to convince you not to do something, the more you want to do Isn't that like the no, tears of Cassandra? No, no, no. But if Steven had said, this is a bad movie, don't go see it, I'd be like, okay, probably not worth the effort. But, Steve, yeah. but the fact that he's going on such it's a rant bad. about it makes me have to see it. Yeah, there's an inverse relationship oh, yeah, with the amount of energy there. you spend trying to make us not go see it and the amount of energy we, th yeah, th that we will expend to go see it. That's actually a really good point. So from now on, I should just be like, a, yeah, the Green Knight. It was kind of a horseshoe effect. The more mm -hmm. energy you spend in not in, in telling us not to watch it, the more likely we'll watch it. And the more energy you spend telling us to watch it, the more likely we'll watch it. But in the middle there, there's basically... There's 98 non-zero universes. There's, there's a lot where, of people um, who have spent a lot of effort happen. trying to get me to watch anime, and so far I haven't had the desire to do so. Yeah, that's a good point. So I think that may disprove your theory. Also, clone, also Clone Wars with Brevin. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, no, that, that's actually a really good point. The like People telling me to watch The Clone Wars has no relationship with my desire to watch The Clone Wars. So wait a second. Wait, hang on. So your your trusted friends tell you, oh my gosh, Brevin, you will love this series. It's so well you done. You really will like it. And, and you like, yeah, and you will. You will love it. And it, no impact. But your trusted friends tell you, so do not watch don't this watch movie. This. 
Yep. And then you go and see it. What the? And that's the Steven paradox. What can I tell you? Yeah. It's not, it's not been solved yet. <laughs> we need to model this. 